I want to greet all of you this morning. Again, in the matchless name of Jesus, name that is above all other names, I want to continue on giving attention to uh, about 30 verses in Peter's first epistle that we've been working our way through. And as we know, Jesus is the name above all other names. In this passage, he's presented as the example above all other examples that we pattern our lives after. I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. My uh, long-suffering wife has to listen to uh, probably more than her share of moaning and whining, complaining related to uh, sermon burdens. Uh, this morning she got to hear my my old line about this has been a month since we were in this passage and I feel like I need the whole time to rehearse what we've been talking about and we need to get into new territory and uh, it's enough when it's three, four, six, eight verses but this this chunk is just a chunk. Uh, so I have a lot of ground I want to cover this morning but also want to be a little bit merciful with all of you and do just a little bit of rehearsing, remind you where we are um, here in 1 Peter. Chapter 3, I'll be starting in verse 1. We have spent some time in the last 16 or 18 verses reviewing a sanctified response to broken authority. In a fallen world, we understand that things are not what they should be. Um, And yet, we're called as God's people to respond in a way that is redemptive and sanctifies and carries with it a testimony. And we've reviewed uh, two types of relationships that illustrate this. The first was considering God's people as citizens and our requirement to obey every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, um, having the effect of stopping the the mouths of foolish and ignorant people. We spent some time looking at servants and masters and the responsibility of God's people to submit themselves to froward masters, unworthy of submission, uh, walking outside of God's will, disgraceful in that, and yet God's people are called to walk in submission as far as they're able. We understand we are to obey God rather than man when it comes to that point. The last message we were considering a passage, I'll draw your attention to it here, um, in chapter 2 and verse 21. I'm going to read that again just for review, and then we'll get into the next relationship that we are charged with redeeming and sanctifying and responding in a way that's beyond what the flesh is capable of responding to. Verse 21 of chapter 2, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. And Peter's reminding us here that Jesus is an example. Where he's reminding us that Jesus has left footprints. This word steps is speaking of a depression in the ground, a track. Many of you have tracked deer before. You you follow the footprints. You can see precisely where that animal stepped because it left tracks. 
This is what Peter's referring to here in verse 21, that we are to follow Jesus' footprints, his literal tracks, follow him that closely, not just end up where he ended up and follow the general path, but study his life, study his example. We spoke about his example as a, uh, we used this uh, example of something to be traced. We said that this word was only here in scripture. This Greek word example was hupogramos, and that is it's something that we are to write under. It's a pattern that we're to trace, something that given, given to us for our instruction. We then have three who's about this example, about these footprints. Verse 22, who, namely Christ, did no sin, no guile found in his mouth. Our example, footprints to follow. Verse 23, who, namely Christ, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, committing himself to him that judgeth righteously, namely the Father. Verse 24, again, our example, our footprints to follow. Who? His own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Okay, we come down to chapter 3 then. We open a new type of relationship here. I'm going to spend some time looking at these seven verses. I'm not ready to commit to get through all seven of them today, although uh, I should. I don't want to rush, so... We'll see what time allows. In chapter 3, verse 1, the text is going to be seven verses. I want to read this first verse, make a little introduction, and then move on with the message. Transitioning to a new relationship here in chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. I'm going to stop there just for a moment, to give attention to the fact that there are quite a few churches in what's called Christendom where that statement presented as accurate and authoritative and the word of God uh, would draw fire from a congregation. I'm occasionally glad to have a solid oak pulpit here. I understand that this is not a congregation that I expect... uh, projectiles to start coming from the audience, but can we be open enough or human enough to admit that this is not a simple passage, even for us, I think. Wives in subjection to your own husbands. That, here we have a purpose word. I appreciated what Brother Darwin shared in his devotion, that it's not our place to go questioning God. We don't demand of God, ask to do something that we'd rather not do, why? Give me one good reason. Explain it to me. We don't appreciate that from our children, not in that tone at least. But here, God graciously gives us what we would appreciate. Why is this? Why is this costly command given? The word that. If any obey not the word, they also may. Without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives. I want to notice here that the chapter starts with the word likewise. 
likewise, obviously drives our attention back. Let's look back into chapter 2. These chapter divisions are kind of artificial here. We look back at Christ as an example. Christ as footprints to follow. And wives are commanded likewise. And I think it's very reasonable to say likewise is looking back to Christ. He suffered for us. He left an example, following his footprints. He was reviled. He reviled not again. He threatened not. He trusted God for righteous judgment. Wives, likewise, consider Christ. I'm not certain that that's what the likewise is to draw our attention to because we can also go a little further back to chapter 2, verse 13 and verse 18, which both start with the same command that wives receive here in verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, the command is, be in subjection. We go back to verse 18 of chapter 2. Servants, be subject. We go back to verse 13. Speaking of citizenry, I'm not quite sure how to describe who's addressed here, but submit yourselves. Now, I appreciate about the King James that as we read it, it's got a literary quality to it. It's, it's got a beauty. It, it uses a variety of vocabulary. I read in the introduction to the King James translation, the translator said, we will not be bound to a single word to translate a particular Greek word. In other words, they indulged in a little liberty to make it flow and to make it pleasant and to make it read in a way that's becoming. Uh, it has a literary appeal. It, it sounds nice. It isn't tedious. It doesn't read just like a choppy thing that says, okay, we come to this, this Greek word here for submit is hupotasso. We have to say submit. No, they use a variety of words that mean the same thing. But we lose the fact that in verse 13 and 18 of chapter 2 and verse 1 of chapter 3, the same Greek word is used, I'd say, for emphasis or for point. So we could read verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Verse 18, servants, submit yourselves to your masters. Chapter 3, verse 1, wives, submit yourselves. Likewise, likewise. Verse 1 here addresses this possibility of converting husbands without the word. That is, by the wives' conversation, if they're involved in a relationship with a disobedient, ungodly husband, perhaps one who was never converted in the first place or one that has backslidden and is now outside the grace of God, that they can, by their conversation, win their husbands. Elsewhere, I think it's 1 Corinthians. I'm going to leave it at that. There's a description made about uh, wives that if the unbelieving husband is satisfied to stay with you, stay with him. Who knows, wives, maybe you will win your husband. And then it turns it around and says, who knows, husbands, maybe you'll win your wife. We understand here that as wives are addressed, we're not just going to lock ourselves into the fact that as men and as husbands, there's nothing to be learned here. You tune out while I address the wives. We don't do that. We look for the word of God to speak to us together. So what's called for here is for wives through their 
holy lives to draw someone to Christ who is outside of Christ um, without a word to be one. Uh, this concept that just seems like a contradiction, it's basically calling you wives to a wordless conversation. Wordless conversation. You are to participate as wives in this situation that's described in a wordless conversation. I don't know how many of you ever sat in awe, but whenever I sat in the back, and I try to pay attention up front, but occasionally, sorry, eyes wander a little bit, um, I'd look over and I'd see Evangel Miller sitting there. What's that about? And I follow his gaze over, and guess who? <laughs> There's Rosemary, and she's over there. They're having a conversation 40 feet apart, oblivious to everybody except for nosy people that are snooping and watching like me, communicating clearly without a word. That's impressive. Very impressive. Lip reading uh, fascinates me. I love to watch it. I kind of miss it. Um, a wordless conversation. I, Rebecca and I enjoy that on a very, very, very small level. After 37 years of marriage, you might occasionally see us exchange a glance and a little bit of body language, a little bit of face motion, maybe a whispered word. After 37 years, there's a fair amount communicated without a word. We see here in verse 1 that wives in subjection to husbands, if the husband obeys not the word, they may, without the word, without a word, win their husbands by their conversation. All right, we stumble a little bit over this word conversation because 400 years ago, I guess 411 years ago, uh, when the King James Version was authorized by King James, conversation meant daily life, everyday routine. The practical things you do that are visible through the day. That was your conversation. And now somehow, and I'm not here to explain it, we've come to the point that a conversation is two people talking. So we understand that the wife's conversation that has the potential to win the disobedient husbands is not this wordless conversation like uh, Evangel and Rosemary would carry out. It's speaking of their everyday lives, their everyday lives. Peter, it fascinates me that the Apostle Peter has been called the Apostle of Conversation because he uses the word conversation, referring to everyday life, 25 times more often than the rest of the New Testament. You should write that down. There might be a test afterward. What's to be learned from that? First Peter, second Peter, eight chapters, eight times, twice in our text today, Peter speaks of conversation as everyday life. He uses the word conversation eight times in eight chapters. The rest of the New Testament, uh, I looked it up, it averages one time every 25 chapters. Peter is 25 times as likely in a given verse to talk about our daily life. He's obsessed with it. The transformed life of the child of God. The conversation. He speaks of holy conversation, filthy conversation, chaste conversation. On and on. 
He's obsessed with conversation. And he seems terribly concerned that this example that we follow of Jesus' life and these footprints that we follow of Jesus' life are followed closely by God's people, very closely. I find it ironic that this is the same Peter that before he was a pastor to the churches in Asia Minor, before he was an apostle at Pentecost, he was a disciple. And he just isn't our sharpest example of someone that followed Jesus' example and followed Jesus' footprints. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all account the fact that, or recount the fact that after Gethsemane, when following Jesus was gonna start costing something, there was gonna be suffering involved, there's risk involved, the arrest at Gethsemane, how closely is Peter tracking Jesus' footprints, Jesus' example? Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us Peter followed Jesus afar off when it started to cost, when there was risk involved. Maybe you're like me, sadly. Think of Peter. <laughs> Peter, you, you should have done better. You could have done better. Three years with Jesus. You should have followed Jesus closely. Well, here we are confronted with a passage that's calling us to do something under corrupt authority that hurts. It costs. It costs reputation. It costs treasure. It costs our own self-esteem in the eyes of the watching world. It's going to cost what are we going to do with these commands? Are we going to follow afar off? I trust not. I want to uh, mention again as we talk about wives being in subjection and the throwing of projectiles and the, the trauma that would happen, um, sadly, in a lot of churches to consider this passage, a word that the world knows very well. I hear it and I read it. I don't know if we use it or know it, um, but it's the word misogyny. Misogyny. This is not like a back misogyny, uh, like you get your therapy and, you, okay, I went and got my sore muscles misogyny. Now that's, this is different. Misogyny is a term the world uses and I think we would do well to be familiar with. The word miss is against, and gynos is the word that's used here for wives. It's, well, it's women. Uh, against women, grinding down women, ordering women, requiring of women, despising women, misogyny. All right, is that just an exercise in lame words that you'll never need to know again? I don't think so, because I find as I read news articles and even speak to people that I run into, I hear that word more than I've ever heard it before, and it's addressed at us. Maybe not so much at you sisters, but us. Misogynists desire to control women. And it's because somewhere deep down inside them, they despise women. They have no regard for women. They don't honor women. So let's push them down. Let's grind them down. Let's, let's roll out these passages. I mean, there's more than a few in the New Testament. Misogyny. You know, it shouldn't surprise us that we take heat for embracing 
simple commands of the word of God, that our society despises things that are simply laid out in the scriptures. I don't know if you remember, I'm afraid it might have been six months ago now when I started into this passage. I said it had two verses that bookended it, one at the beginning and one at the end. Let's look back to chapter 2, verse 12. Peter prophesies that we will experience being called evildoers for obedience to the word of God. And here we are discussing women in subjection to their husbands, wives in subjection. It says in verse 12 that when our conversation is honest among the Gentiles, they will speak against you as evildoers. Misogyny would be one way we're spoken against for having a desire to walk in obedience to the commands of scripture. They speak against you as evildoers, but on some level they recognize seeing your good works and they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Um, I kind of glossed over that when we started because I'm not absolutely certain what to do with it, but on some level, the very people that would attack God's people for, say, misogyny will glorify God because of our testimony, if not in our day, on the day of visitation. The same statement's made again if you drop down to chapter 3, verse 16. When we, someday I trust, finish this passage, we will come to this verse, the other bookend of the passage. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. I don't know what you do with that, but to me, I take a little bit of uh, comfort in the fact that the things that God's people are attacked for on some level are striking home in a watching world. And on some level... We'll glorify God. Simple obedience. All right. So I want to move into this uh, passage on wives in subjection. Um, we talked about this word likewise that kicks it off. And I, I just want to notice this word here. I brought along a, a little bit of an object lesson. I don't know if anybody's surprised to see a container of milk from a dairy farmer. So this word likewise that launches us into the relationship between a disobedient husband and a wife in subjection starts with likewise. It starts with a Greek word that we get a word about milk from. So this milk is not homogenized. I pulled it off my market trailer this morning and there was a nice cream layer and there was a nice skim layer. The essence of these two parts of the milk was distinct. It was separated. There's a world of difference between the cream layer and the skim layer. This milk is not homogenized. Here this likewise is homoios. Homoios, we get the word homogenized from it. Paul is saying, or uh, Peter is saying, homoios, ye wives. He's saying, what I'm going to talk about is just like what I did talk about. 
the essence of Christ's example, the essence of a submitting servant, the essence of a submitting citizen. It's homios. It's one and the same. It's an instruction for us to not forget what Brother Kinley's been preaching about for low these months and, and not forget what came before and keep it in mind as we move ahead. So we want to do that. The essence of a godly wife submitting to a disobedient husband is one and the same with Christ being reviled and reviling not again, being threatened and threatening not again, bearing our sins, healing us with his stripes. This is what a wife is doing. This is what a servant is doing. This is what a citizen is doing. Submitting when everything about us cries out, this isn't right. All right, I'd like to read the uh, text before we run out of time. I'm going to ask, as I read the first seven verses of 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 1, uh, if you would, as you're able to stand for the reading of the word of God. All right. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is, in the sight of God, of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, Ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, thank you. You can be seated. I was asked this week a very good question. I appreciate the question. I've been talking about this corrupt authority, and the scripture doesn't seem to address it, and Brother Kinley's not addressing it, and are we in effect saying that if you are placed in an authority by God and are abusing that trust, it's okay, because Peter here isn't calling you to task for it. I think that the answer to that is, is clear, but it should be stated, I'm certainly not making any room among God's people for abuse of God-given authority. I, I think we recognize when we consider authority that's come from God that it's not given to be a blessing to the one that's put in authority. It's used that way in a carnal sense where someone in authority says, aha, 
I'm in charge. I remember when uh, Ronald Reagan was shot. Alexander Haig was Secretary of State. And he infamously sang out with glee after Reagan was shot, I'm in charge. Abuse of authority. We understand that God gives authority not as a blessing to the one he trusts with that authority, but as a burden. The burden is the responsibility of the one in authority to protect and to bless those that he's been entrusted with authority with. I hope I said that clearly. So we understand that someone that is not protecting and not blessing is outside of the will of God. This passage doesn't spend a lot of time addressing that. Uh, we do well to remember that there's a whole separate issue here of people that are poor stewards of authority. Actually, this relationship is the one that happens to mention it. It says that your prayers as a husband, a disobedient husband, your prayers will be hindered if you are not honoring your wife in a way that's in step with God's plan for marriage. Your prayers will be hindered, which, uh, that's kind of a little bit of a mild term. It's kind of giving the idea that, well, my, my brother and my other brother and this sister, their prayers are going to get ahead of mine and I just have to take a number and I have to wait till my prayers get God's attention because my prayers are hindered. That is not what's described here in verse 7. The prayers being hindered is a very strong word and it speaks of being cut off of the vine. It says your prayers will be hindered if you're failing to handle the wife that you've been entrusted with carefully the, the Greek word is ek kopto, and ek is out, and kopto is chopped. And we know what a helicopter is. It, it's a chopper. It chops through the air. Your prayers will be hindered. Abusing authority in a husband-wife situation here, your prayers will be cut off. The connection between you and God, the prayer connection, cut off. And I, I don't mean to make too little of that. What then is the relationship when the prayer connection has been cut but that's how seriously God takes that so we won't have a, we certainly won't get to it today but this discussion of husbands likewise wives are putting themselves in a tremendously vulnerable situation when they are unreserved, unreservedly subjecting themselves to a husband that's a risky thing to undertake. And to do it to a disobedient husband, which in Peter's understanding of the faith, a disobedient husband appears to be outside the faith. And here's this godly wife unconditionally submitting and subjecting herself to this husband. All right. I want to think about eight marks, and we might do well to get through four of them, but eight marks of the kind of a life that can win a lost soul. Here it's winning a disobedient husband. But these marks, this following the example, following the footprints of Jesus, are powerful. And they apply outside the husband-wife relationship. 
I want to look at these eight marks, and I just want to work through 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Notice the first mark of a soul-winning life, a life that's capable of delivering someone from eternal torment into eternal life. Someone who rests under authority, resting under authority. I, I don't know if you'd think about the fact that what it means if you're grinding or grating, you're submitting, but you're not happy about it. I don't agree with my husband, but I'm submitting to him because God asks it of me. Meanwhile, the vein is pulsing on the side of your neck. and Whatever that is, that's not submission. The submission demands a restedness, a, a uh, satisfaction, a peace about it. Uh, the example of the little boy sent off to sit in a corner. He misbehaved. Go sit in a corner. He goes, sits in the corner. He was misbehaving. And as he's over there, he's fuming. And he calls out over his shoulder to mom, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. can't decide if that's uh, humorous or not. But it makes the point. Submission that remains against your will is not submission. Resting under authority has the ability to save a soul. We have other verses that uh, could invite projectiles in some circles. Wives, submit yourselves under your own husbands. As unto the Lord, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. Titus 2, young women, be obedient to your own husbands. I hesitate to use Little House on the Prairie two sermons in a row, but I, sorry, just have to use it. I don't know if any of you remember when uh, Laura was going to get married to Almanza, and uh, they're getting ready to go off to the preacher's place or whatever. She stops him and she says, one thing. I'm not going to say I'll obey you. And Almanza says, oh, Laura, don't worry about it. I would never ask you to do that. Phew, she's relieved. Okay, off they go and they do their wedding thing. And I presume she was not charged with obeying her husband. The problem is it was not Almanza's place to release her from that responsibility. God himself put that responsibility on wives. And yet, that responsibility is to be received with a spirit of willingness because we notice here, wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. It would sure be simpler and clearer if it said, wives, you are in subjection. Make no mistake, wives. Your husbands are your heads. They are in authority, you are in subjection, and you will be in subjection, or else. That isn't what it says. It's very much an active participation by the wives. It's, it's a decision. And in my example, Laura decided, I'll have nothing of it. Excuse me, please, I will uh, not be participating in that husband-wife obedience submission thing. Not for me, thank you. I said it wasn't Almanzo's place to refuse to ask her to do that, but it wasn't Laura's place. She has free will. 
She doesn't have the right to reject the authority of her husband and remain in the will of God, but she does have the right to reject the authority of her husband. Wives are to be in subjection. That is your choice. It is your burden. Is it ever a privilege? Wouldn't it be a privilege if it just one time, just one of you, made the difference of eternity to a disobedient soul? The power of a submitted life. It's a soul-winning life, not every time. All right, I want to move on here. We see wives be in subjection to your own husbands that if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of the, of the wives. So outside of the word, apart from being preached at, I don't know if my wife has ever preached at me. She's certainly made some well-needed suggestions and, and comments. But the idea that she would go around and say, I was reading the Bible today and I found this verse. And do, do you remember this verse? And got that in my face and said, do you, do you? What's described here is a conversation. It's a daily life that's winning. It's convicting. It's, it's powerful. It's capable of saving an immortal soul. If any obey not the word, they may, without the word, be won by the holy lives of the wise. Make two statements here. One is, Romans says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I'm going to make the statement that no one is saved apart from the word of God. I may get myself in trouble. Come up afterwards and correct me. But I believe that the word of God is necessary for salvation. But I don't believe that it's sufficient. I think that what's described here is a wife whose holy life is so compelling that a husband develops a hunger for the God that's behind it. What's happened to this woman? I've never seen anything like it. So the word of God is necessary for someone to come to faith, but it's not sufficient. Usually, almost never. That is, you take a tract, you take a Bible, you wave it in somebody's face, you say, you're headed for eternal torment. Jesus died for your sins. God loves you, has a perfect plan for your life. Uh, here, read this tract, and off you go to confront the next person. Apart from a holy conversation, apart from a relationship, here's the word of God. Almost always requires more than the word. I'm also going to say that a compelling Christian life, a godly, submitted, obedient wife, by itself does not convert the soul. Uh, why would I say that? Well, for one reason, Jesus had a perfectly holy, perfectly godly, perfectly submitted life, and we read the Gospels and we don't find him confronting people with his holy life. Look how godly I am. Don't you want to be a child of God? No. The godly life, the holy conversation, gives him a platform that the word of God can be effective from. So here we read the second mark of a soul-winning life is that it demonstrates Christ before it shares Christ. 
I don't want to use that as a, an excuse to always be demonstrating Christ and never really get to the power of the gospel and the converting power of the word of God. But we need to pay attention to the fact that the wife here is charged with, without the word, winning by their conversation. Could ask the question, what's more important, our practice or our preaching? Kind of curious what people would say, but I would say the answer to that question is yes. On their own, independently, one without the other, preaching without a practice or practice without a preaching is at least hobbled. All right, I want to move on to the third example we find here of a soul-winning life, a life that can win a soul. And that is that it's a watched life. How do you all feel? When I'm up front here, I, I really feel watched, terribly watched. Always happy to sit down. Uh, But a, a watched life is necessary if it's going to be a soul saving life. Here we're talking about wives in submission, but we're safe to generalize this to our other relationships. A watched life. I'm going to ask you to bear with me a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about language. And the scripture having different words behind see and look. Okay, this morning I came out 850 and was going to turn right on 35. And before I turned, I looked both ways and I could see that no one was coming. I looked and I could see. This is the basis level. This is vision. It's mechanical. It's observing something. No car, no car. I pulled out. That's seeing and looking. Now, there's two more levels here, and what we're trying to look at is verse 2, that the world, and specifically disobedient husbands, are beholding your life. They're beholding your life. I want to talk about what it means that the world is watching. All right, um, let's do a little bit of moving here. Mark, uh, if you would, First Peter 3. Let's look at Matthew 24, verse 30. I want to try to make the point that a soul-winning life is a watched life. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 30. Okay, these two verses are not describing looking left and looking right on Route 35, seeing if there's any cars coming, looking. But the language here is basically see and look. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. All right, when the tribes of earth see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great glory, that has very little connection to seeing that there's nobody coming on Route 35. It's it's a whole other level of observation, and there's a Another Greek word is used here for what's seen. It's actually a word that would be better understood, gazing. They will gaze. The tribes of the earth will stand with their mouth open. The sign of the Son of Man coming in clouds. It's not just something I saw 
mechanically with the vision of my eyes, it's, okay, this is big. This is really big. Uh, John 1. Turn to John 1, verse 51. Still considering what it means to have a watched life. John 1 and verse 51. All right, Jesus saying to Nathanael, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see. You shall see heaven open. You shall see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This isn't just looking. This isn't just no cars are coming. This is a gazing, open mouth. Never saw anything like this before and never will again. I can't draw a word picture of this because I have no idea what it would look like. The son of man and the angels ascending and descending. And Okay, this isn't going to happen again real soon. That is, uh, that's astounding. That's something you gaze at. You don't just look at. You don't just see, you gaze. There's one more level above gazing. And Peter uses it here in this passage. Please go back to First Peter. He uses it twice. You know, people argue against the uh, authorship of Peter. He couldn't have written these epistles because the language is so lofty. It's crazy, exceptionally, I guess, intellectual or highbrow or whatever Greek is when it's just so. <laughs> this man had rough hands. He's a fisherman, Galilean fisherman, writing this. Does that shake your faith? If it does, consider the fact that a Galilean fisherman cannot make the lame walk either. He's performing things that are well beyond his pay grade. Apart from the Spirit of God, Peter could not have written this epistle. Apart from the Spirit of God, Peter could not preach at Pentecost, and Peter could not make the lame walk. The glory for that goes to the Spirit of God, and I just think we can be encouraged by that. So anyway, uh, I'd like to look at, and then wrap up, uh, 1 Peter 2.12. We're coming back to the fact that these disobedient husbands are beholding the holy conversation of you wives in your submission. They're beholding it. Well, that word, that Greek word, it takes this word for gaze and it adds a emphasizing, I want to say this better. It takes the word for beyond seeing to gazing. It adds an emphatic to it. And that is, uh, if anybody's writing it down, you can write down epi, E-P-I. It means above, above gazing. Beyond, never saw anything like that before, to overwhelming, dazzled by what I'm seeing, transfixed. I'm, in, I'm enthralled. I, I, that is powerfully compelling what I'm seeing. I'm, I'm frozen in fascination by what I'm seeing. This is the word that Peter uses. It's nowhere else in the New Testament. He uses it twice here in this passage, once talking about wives in submission, 
and once here in verse 12. He's, he's taken this word for gazing with your mouth open and added this epi to it and said, it's beyond astounding to behold the holy conversation of a submitted wife. And maybe I'm going too far to say the holy conversation of a submitted servant or a submitted citizen. This is astounding. And it's powerful. Uh, verse 12 of First Peter 2 reads, Have your conversation, your life, honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold. This is this word, uh, epioptanomai. It's, it's beyond gazing. They're going to behold your good works and they'll call you evildoers and despise you for righteous living. But on the inside, they are enthralled. Never seen anything like this before. There's something going on with this person. Same word, this frozen in fascination because I've seen something I've never seen before. Can't even really believe what my eyes are seeing <clears throat> is used again in chapter 3, verse 2, where husbands, in their disobedience, see wives exposing themselves to great danger, loss of reputation, risk, even of life and limb. And in verse 2 it says, they'd be won by the holy life of the wives while they behold your chaste conversation. I want to wrap this up by saying that our lives as children of God are to be compelling. They're to be different. This idea that, well, I, I kind of talked to that guy and he seemed, kind of seemed like a Christian. I don't know, he could be a Christian. Maybe not. I mean, it's a nice guy. We're called in following Christ's footprints and Christ's examples to a level that exceeds the might be a Christian thing to this epi-optonomia that I can't even believe what I'm seeing. Ah, must be an evildoer. That was the testimony against the 16th century Anabaptists. You can tell they're devils because look at their holy lives. They're obviously doing Satan's work because their lives are so holy. Does that make any sense to you? Well, it makes sense when you consider you'll be addressed as evildoers for your holy living, but the persecutors that are causing you suffering are enthralled. They are beholding. They're watching. Tertullian, uh, early church father, second century, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Where I think we all heard that before. You know, today, the stake, um, the sword, the rack, the drownings in the river, they aren't part of, for sure not, central Pennsylvania Christian experience. But the cost of walking like Christ is, and I believe is still today, as we are witnesses or martyrs, our sacrifice for our testimony is seed. It earns us the right to be watched. We need to work out practical details, and it blesses me that here we do that. Uh, Nonconformity, we are committed to that. 
Well, what does that mean? Well, <laughs> okay, we've got a. Whatever nonconformity is or isn't, it doesn't look like the world. Now, whether it reaches into practical things that we see with our eyes, uh, dress and cars, and I'm sure it does on some level, but when the whole package of nonconformity comes together, you have something that is beheld. It's watched. It makes an impact. It creates a desire. I'm going to close with a story, short story, of a man who was converted by his wife's submission and godly conversation. Uh, this was written by George Mueller, who was a, he founded the Plymouth Brethren. Uh, he's an evangelist, but George Mueller would tell the story of an acquaintance, a German man who was a drunk and his wife was a devout believer. This man, as an alcoholic, would be late every night at the tavern. The wife would send the servants on up to bed and wait up until he returned early in the morning. She would receive him kindly. She never scolded or complained. At times, she would even have to undress him and lift him into bed. One night in the tavern, he said to his drinking buddies, I'll wager, if we go to my house, my wife is still sitting up. She's waiting for me. She'll come to the door. She'll give all of us a royal welcome. She'll make us a supper if I ask her to. The friends were doubtful but decided to go along. Sure enough, the wife came to the door, received them courteously, willingly agreed and made supper for them without any resentment. After serving them their meal, she went off to her room. As soon as she left, one of the men began to condemn the husband. This is a drinking buddy. Condemns the husband. What kind of a man are you to treat such a good woman so miserably? The accuser got up, couldn't finish his supper, left the house. Another drinking buddy did the same until they had all left without eating their meal. The husband was deeply convicted of his wickedness especially his heartless treatment of his wife. He went to his wife's room. He asked her to pray for him, repented of his sins, and surrendered to Christ. From that time on, he became a devoted disciple of the Lord Jesus, one without a word. It's a privilege. It's a burden. A privilege to... Be equipped through the Spirit of God to follow Christ as our example, to walk in his footsteps. God help us as we look to do that. Let's kneel for prayer.